All right, I suppose we will get started tonight. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to our reading and conversation with author Jennifer Bowering Delisle. My name is Catherine Abbas, and I'm honored to be facilitating tonight's event. We are live on YouTube, and we'll be taking questions from any attendees tonight through YouTube's chat function. So as the event progresses, if you are feeling so inclined, please don't hesitate to post your questions on YouTube and they'll trickle my way uh, and I'll ensure we work them into our conversation tonight. So Jennifer Bowering Delisle is the author of Deriving, a collection of poetry and the Boston Chair, a lyric family memoir. She regularly teaches creative writing and is a board member of Edmonton's New West Press. She's a settler in Amiskwati, Wiskigan, and she's joining us here tonight as part of the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. This event is sponsored by Read Alberta and the University of Alberta Press. Spearheaded by the Book Publishers Association of Alberta, Read Alberta is a hub where Alberta's readers, authors, publishers, booksellers, and libraries can connect, support, and learn more about one another. They feature work by Alberta publishers and Alberta authors and illustrators in celebration of the distinct diverse voices coming out of our own province amidst a shared backdrop of prairie fields, windswept badlands, boreal forest, rolling foothills and majestic mountains. And you can learn more about them at readalberta.ca. The University of Alberta Press is a unit of the University of Alberta Library operating since 1969. It has a reputation for publishing books that have scholarly impact, demonstrate publishing innovation, and achieve creative distinction. Of course, it's also the publisher of Jennifer's latest poetry collection, Deriving. So thank you so much for being here with us tonight, Jennifer. Uh, we're very excited to hear you read. So without further ado, I'll hand the imaginary microphone over to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you for that intro and for hosting tonight. Um, I also really want to thank the Writers Guild of Alberta, particularly Sadie, for organizing this. Thanks to Read Alberta, uh, and thanks to everyone at U of A Press. Um, and thank you to all the people who read and gave me feedback on, on the book along the way, uh, particularly my editor, Jenny Edwards. Uh, and I also want to take a moment to thank and remember Doug Barber, uh, who passed away on Saturday. Doug was an icon of poetry and publishing and in Alberta. Uh, and I'm really honored to have worked with him on the board of New West Press. Uh, so as Catherine said, uh, I'm coming to you from Treaty 6 territory in Nimiskochis, Weskigan. Uh, and I'm really pr profoundly grateful for that. And as a settler and a treaty person, it was something that was always on my mind as I was writing this book. Um, as I was thinking about how language itself is shaped by colonialism and thinking about my own place in the community and my role as a mother. And it's something particularly on my mind tonight with the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation tomorrow. So reading Indigenous literature will definitely be part of my day of reflection tomorrow. So I'm gonna start with a piece that is really rooted in my experience of this place. It's called North Saskatchewan. It carries glacial genes from the ice fields. Snow fed, it knows how to be a body in the cold. Every day the train crossed the river, 20 seconds of light between the tunnels through the banks. I watched it freeze up, rafts of white snagging beneath the bridge, frazzled ice, pans linked along the shoreline. 
Inside me, my son was building white fat on bone. He was born in December when the days were narrowed, seconds of light between the black banks of a northern night. Next December, he will touch snow and watch the river from the bridge, the brushstrokes of wind, the city outfalls melting open leads. Walleye and pike have learned to live beneath the snowpack, to feed on cold minnows and darkness that swim the silty channel bars. And all year long, we drink the river. So a lot of this book uses the etymology of a word as a prompt or starting point, and then riffs off of that origin as I connect the word to my own experience. So I'm going to read the first piece in the collection called Etymology. Descartes thought worms birthed spontaneous in soil and heat. Sudden maggots and rotting flesh were proof of God until Francesco Reddy placed meat in sealed and open flasks, watched worms devour skinned frogs. Entomology, from entomus, meaning cut, cut up. The barbarous sound terrified me, said naturalist Charles Bonnet, preferring insectology for his caterpillar breath, for cleaving the hydra's head, watching it grow back, for his portion of the effort to catalog all Earth's creatures. Etymology, from etymus, meaning true. You can tell a carnivore by the contents of the belly. English shares the word for meat with French, beef, boeuf, pork, pork. But the words for animals with German, cow, cuh, swine, schwein. This is a story of the Norman conquest, of who ate the meat and who farmed it. Just as other words tell other stories of things cataloged, consumed, banana, curry, of shores landed on and flagged, specimens pinned in curiosity cabinets, and larger creatures googled in menageries, kangaroo, orangutan. English is formed by deriving and compounding onomatopoeia and loanwords, a term that falsely suggests we give them back. And if we could give them back, if we would, it would be as cut, not as truth, not as animal alive and growing, but as meat that's been in our mouths. Go green. Green because the trees, because the rainforest canopy, light as long as history, because the vine, the moss, the Honduran brook frog, but it could have easily been go blue. For clean sky, ocean swaddle, the whales, the rainy day, minor sax notes of loss. Oh, don't let this love end. Can't go on living without you. 10 years, they say, to save our worlds. The ones that quiver on the surface of this sphere. The one of fingers sliding on guitar strings cotton sundress, white lines of novel spine, the one in which my daughter's hair is fine as dandelions, fun to seed, and she turns on water just to make a rainbow in the spray. So go blue, go green, go Kelly, go sage, go green with envy of the ones still in denial, 
Go to the dark veined forest, go rogue, go feral, because the fern, because the kakapo parrot. And when the sky is green from fire, go to the ends of earth with rinsed out soup cans and plastic made of corn. And if you don't believe that this is what it takes, let's find a way to mix the ocean with the sun. This next one is called precarious. From the Latin, precarious, held through the favor of another. Once we snuck down to the slope below the trail, my skirt lifted to the canyon, your grip the only thing between my white flesh and the cactus. This was new enough then that I trusted love over gravity, desire over pain. Not related, as one might think, to precipice, from the Latin precipitium, a steep place, from precepts head first. How the earth was loose against the bank, how everything that day was white with light. We build a tower of blocks with our sun, show him to make a strong base, show him balance. But everywhere there is color, here a horse on a ledge, here an outcrop of blue, here the head of an owl and the body of a fox. Could we make it tall as him? Could we make it tall as us? we can. Now yellow, now red, this growing wonderful thing, a place for us to live in the air. This defies physics, how we construct the floor as we stand upon it. Not related, as one might feel, to precious. From vulgar Latin precare, to ask earnestly, to beg, it is not the cliff to fear, but the body you are holding, how firmly you grip it, how firmly it grips you. Not the cliff, but the way the light is what can blind you. Look how the river carves our names. Look how the hawk rides the heat. Look how high this thing we've built is. From the Latin, prex, entreaty, prayer. If we fall from this great height, let it be that we were here, not in towers of our imagination. Let it be that we are part of the sky. So while I have two children now, I dealt with infertility and multiple miscarriages for about three years before my son was born. And a lot of this book is about that time. And this one is called Instinct. My Psych 101 prof taught that love is only reproductive instinct. Most took notes. A few protested in the classroom, wore our heads, feeling sorry for his wife. I was not so primal. We were the creatures painting ceilings with our plans naked on the floor. Careers, house, someday a child. A distant suite for the view it offered, like stepping back in a gallery. Years later, this wanting is not art, but thirst. A baboon in a Polish zoo adopts a chick meant for her dinner. A penguin treks to the coldest place on earth to lay her egg and put her hopes upon her partner's feet. I preen and call, cry when the blood comes, cry when the sitcom wife conceives. My territory is envy and fear. I mark it by peeing on ovulation predictor strips. The penguins come here far from the sea because the ice is solid for the colony. The one whose chick has died 
will try to steal the baby of another, her grief blinding off the snow. She has trekked 70 miles to bring her baby food. It's not known how she finds her way. When they tell us the baby inside me has died, we grasp each other as if drowning. It's a leading cause of divorce, but we have grown our marriage like gills. We'll huddle beneath our grief and watch Game of Thrones. We've had enough statistics. The penguin finds her mate amongst the squawking thousands by his unique call. Somehow she hears him in the noise. And I still know he was wrong, Professor What's-His-Name, about love. It is not a sneeze or suckle, not a pupil widening in the dark. But he was right about the soma and the axon, the number and names of lobes of the brain. We have lived for thousands of years. So this next one is a poem about moving home back to Alberta after living in Vancouver for a number of years. It's called Highway 16 near Blue River. Um, a lot of you probably know that stretch of road just on the other side of the Alberta-BC border. Highway 16 near Blue River. Mountain highway, leg through skirts of spruce, recumbent, knee-capped, we know this road. We're watching for the spot where we hit the ditch that winter, just to say, there, there it is. The road had awakened with a sudden kick. Black ice flicked us like a fly. If there'd been oncoming traffic, if there'd been a stand of trees. Now tourists park in the sun and run across lanes to photograph elk. House plants on the back seat were headed where the highway meets the ring road, looking for home in the place it used to be. Here, after the bend. No, the trees were thicker. No, the ditch was deeper. If it had been at this cliff, or there, the frozen lake. But there was only snow. Now, thick brush has grown over scars. It's summer and the road is dry. We'll buy a little bungalow and also curtains and you'll plant a garden. We'll leave behind the winter, the glimpse, the embankment here. Yes, the straight stretch where we waited for the tow truck, snow filling our boots. It may not really be the spot and we don't stop anyway. There's another line that marks the province where in an instant we age an hour and there's still miles to go. September snow. When summer ends suddenly, I see you shimmering as above a sun-baked road. We have known heat. We haven't yet deflated the kid's pool. We haven't yet picked the herbs to dry. And your body glimpsed at bedtime between t-shirt and dark as brown as the unchanged hairs. The robins look bewildered by the sugar covering their food. They miss the earth. And if you should ever fall out of love with me, I too want to notice. So I've been thinking a lot lately about joy and hope as both content and part of poetic practice. Um, trying to foster that as much as I can in, in these times that don't lend itself to that. Um, so while there's a lot of loss in this book, my hope is that an overarching feeling of hope comes through. 
So I want to leave you with one that is about that for me. It's called Spring. Mittens lost in snow are budding in the grass, and now it is still light after supper. Maybe in a few months I will hold my belly the way those women do, saucer and cup, palm full of bird seed. This is the ice we loved as kids, melt squishing under skin like walking on the lens of an eye. Maybe in a few years we'll follow small boots across the frozen park, remember when we too were light and thought everything alive. Now we wait for sky to hold its light like water in a blue glass. We put our scarves in our pockets and there are so many birds. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, so those questions on YouTube can continue to come in. Um, I'm going to start with a few that I was curious about myself uh, as I went through deriving and um, and and just learn more about you as a writer. So my first question is is just about some of the some of the topics that you explore in deriving they're they're so personal and so difficult these moments um and you usually come at them with such a clarity and so much grace so um i guess i'm curious especially as a poet about the distance that you might need to approach those kinds of subjects i know that's something a lot of writers of nonfiction and poetry struggle struggle to do so um, do you write about these experiences closer to when you live them is it more of like a, not a spontaneous uh, practice obviously but um is it is it is it you know kind of closer to the experience um when when you're writing them or are they more of a distant kind of reflection on on the past if you will yeah such a great question and the answer really is both um the the timeline of of the experience in this book is really quite long and um so some of the poems I, I think all of the poems were, were written in the moment of kind of reacting to whatever experience I was having but then some of them underwent quite a bit of change over the years so some of these poems are you know 10 years old um like particularly those infertility poems and um some of them were even published in earlier forms and then I, I did a lot of revision quite a long time after the experience. And so after having two kids, I was going back and revising poems that were that were about infertility. So my hope is that they still have that um, that emotional core, that that raw um, experience. Um, but I think maybe I needed to have some distance from some of them anyway, to be able to, um, to, to do the revisions necessary to, to, um, and, and maybe to, maybe to have that, that, um, ability to reflect on the experience too. So, so not just the ability to, to manipulate the craft, but also to, to define what those experiences were for me. Yeah. Do you find that the the poems change a lot in that revision process? Like, it, it, are they recognizable still to you by the end, or is it kind of just that emotional core that that carries through the revision? Um, 
there there's probably a few like key images or you know maybe a line or a phrase or a metaphor that that retains that core and that stays um but a lot of a lot of it around that ends up or has ended up changing in, in some of these poems anyway Very so good. I don't know going going forward I mean some of them are newer and I'm, I'm writing new poems now so I don't know I don't know how they're going to change over the course of, of the years if, if they're going to be more stable if this is more speaking to the content of of this book um we'll see right yeah I guess we will see 10 <laughs> years down the road perhaps yeah um I, I really liked when you mentioned like trying to access hope and joy in your writing. And I think especially sometimes in poetry, it can be difficult. And when we're talking about um, things going on now, like with, with poems like Go Green, um, how do you, like, how do you do that? Uh, especially when you're dealing with experiences that, uh, or topics that are just almost void of those, of hope and of joy. How do you access that in your writing? And do you have any like any specific strategy or is it just a, just a beautiful mindset? <laughs> it's something that I am learning um, and like really actively trying to foster. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that I had a lot of that figured out. Um, I still don't have a lot of that figured out, but I, I really found about halfway through the pandemic, not that it's over, but, you know, about 10 months in that, that I was finding, like, I hadn't really, I hadn't really been able to write. I was revising the book, but I hadn't really been able to produce new work. And I was feeling like I really needed to be conscious about finding the joy in my practice again, um, because it was something that, that I really felt like I had lost. And um, so I've been doing a lot of reading um, around the subject. And I actually taught a workshop over the summer around um, writing with joy as a way of like trying to, to, to learn along with my students and, and, and yeah. foster that kind of practice. But one person, one book that's been really influential for me is Ross Gay's The Book of Delights. If you don't know Ross Gay, he's a fantastic American poet. And he wrote this book of what he calls essayettes. He decided that he was going to write a little mini essay about something that delighted him every day for a year. Wow. And what he talks about in the preface of that book is how that helped him to develop what he calls a delight muscle. And it was just like a way of you know, being conscious about having that, that daily practice made him more open to seeing those things. So I've been trying to do that. I, and I have been finding that that's been useful and, and like generative less so lately, to be honest with you, like just with the way things are going, uh, these days, I've, it's been a struggle. I'll be honest. Um, yeah. So, but I think we also have to find ways to forgive ourselves for, and, and just like acknowledge where we are emotionally at a given time. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I like the idea of it being almost a muscle that you can kind of flex or improve or strengthen as you, as you practice. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, in terms of what motivates your writing is, 
is there like a public or a personal uh, motivation for you? Like what gets you to sit down and, and put words on a page, or maybe it's just an experience that feels uh, that it needs to be shared in some way. Do you have any kind of like specific motivation for behind your writing, behind your poetry? Um, yeah, I think it depends on the moment and I think it depends on the piece. I, I usually want to try and, well, what I look for as a reader is, is that moment of connection, um, with, with a poet, with a writer, being able to recognize myself in, in what I'm reading. And so on the other side, that's always something that I'm striving for. I'm hoping that by sharing my experiences, which yeah, are quite personal in this book, I'm hoping that, that there's a reader on the other end that can recognize themselves in what I'm saying. So, so I think, yeah, maybe it's about taking the personal and making it, making it public, I guess. Right, right. Or, and I mean, I, I don't really think about it in terms of like public so much as like, you know, moments of connection with one imagined <laughs> reader on the other side, right. you know, like a more personal relationship kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. Like when, I mean, it's rare that we're connecting, like even with this many people, right, where you've got such an audience, it's reading is such a personal endeavor uh, and as is writing. So interesting. Okay. Um, what appeals to you about poetry as a storytelling form? Why, why is it poems for you, especially for deriving? Um, it really just comes back to language, just a love of language, a love of um, what you can do with, with a phrase, with, with, you know, those really small units of language. Um, and, and what I'm really drawn to is, is the sound of a line or even, even a particular word, the rhythm of it, um, that, that, um, that musicality. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think a lot of my poems do, they are, they are fairly narrative. Um, and a, a lot of my work does kind of straddle the, the boundaries of genre. Like I do a lot of like hybrid of nonfiction and, and poetry. Um, but I keep coming back, I think, to that, that lyric and that, that compression. Um, that's what I'm really drawn to, what really inspires me. There's a lot of freedom in that. I love that. Um, I loved what you said also at the beginning about um, using, you know, the etymology of a word as kind of an inspiration for a longer piece. Is that part of your regular process or was that specific to this collection of poems? It was specific to this collection of poems. It started as, as kind of a, a project. I've been I'd finished this manuscript of essays, which were quite personal. A lot of that material was also about infertility stuff, but also about the death of my mother. And I was trying to pull back from that. And I thought, well, um, maybe by using this kind of prompt of etymology, I can, you know, come at or like find material that's less confessional, and then the opposite kind of happened. <laughs> Just right. ended up like bringing me back always into those recurring themes, or you know, the things that were on my mind. Um, so, yeah, it started as like a a, a prompt, a, a specific project, but since I've finished 
the book, I find I keep wanting to go back into it. Like, I, or I'll hear an interesting etymology and 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 want to keep keep working in that mode. So, yeah, yeah. I know. I I mean, as many others do too. You keep usually a notepad of different like words or moments that might inspire poems down the road. I always think of those people as like the gatherers among us, and they're just picking out pieces uh, that they might later spin into something. And then there are the other writers who are the hunters, and they're like. I've got a target in mind or a message that I want to convey and I know exactly what steps I'm going to take to get there and I'm going to set out on this path. Do you mm -hmm. identify with either of those types of, of writer? Would you say you're a hunter or gatherer um, or are you, you know, a rogue writer? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't heard that metaphor before, but yeah, I think it works. I, yeah, definitely gatherer is what I was identifying with as you were describing those two things. I think I've tried to be a hunter and um, have ended up catching things I didn't expect, <laughs> which, right. which maybe is, is a process in itself, right? That's not always necessarily a bad thing, but um, yeah. Cool. Um, in deriving, were any of the themes brand new to you? Uh, or I know you kind of said that there's some echoes of, of your nonfiction work in this collection. Was there, was there any kind of theme that you were tackling for the first time in this and if there was how did you how did you navigate that or integrate it with um some of the ideas you were already working with that's an interesting question yeah i don't know because it in many ways it was a long project um but it was also like i had a bunch of as i said the old material and then i had this new material that i was uh, working with around etymology and at some point I realized oh these two things go together that that oh. when I'm I'm thinking about the origins of words I'm also thinking about the origins of people <laughs> like the origins of a child the origins of a family and 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 so at some point the multiple projects kind of kind of came together and so I think because of that it's kind of hard for me to think of it in terms of where those themes came from some of them I've been working with for a long time right um, yeah I don't know if that answers your question but <laughs> yeah, no I I'm sure yeah with these longer projects two things kind of start to merge together and blend and and yeah where does one end and one one begin um would you say that you have you know kind of a similar process for every every time you sit down to write uh, or to create kind of a collection? Um, do you go through the same kind of writing process or creative process or is it different depending on what you're what you're working on? Yeah, I think it's different depending on what I'm I'm working on. Like right now, I, I kind of have two projects on the go um, because one is more like a project, like more of a defined um, this sort of thematic thing and then I'll be inspired to write about something that doesn't fit into that so it goes over here right. <laughs> so so yeah there's there's like I have um I I take Wednesdays to as my writing day my day off from my day job I sit down and I try and write and that's when I'm trying to concentrate on that defined project um but often the most writing for me is happening during the rest of the week in like little bits here and there. It's like a line occurs to me while I'm making dinner or, you know, something like that. And I, I'll write it down 
if I'm smart, if I'm lucky, I'll write it down and remember it. And, um, and so a different kind of piece gets generated in that way, or, or at least started, you know, I'll come back to that then on Wednesday and, and do right. more of the concentrated work, but it's, maybe that's like coming back to your hunters and gatherers. Maybe it's more like Wednesday, sit down to do some hunting, but right. um, gathering through the week and, and it seems to, to generate work for different kinds of projects. That's cool. Yeah. A bit of a hybrid too, where, where you can kind of piece together things during the week, but then when you're actually going to string them together uh, on the Wednesday or whatever, I think that that allows for some time for some reflection as well. Uh, mm. that's probably beneficial. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious. I love, I love reading an author's acknowledgements uh, and in yours, you thank your family for letting you write about them. And of course, yeah, there's such, you know, personal explorations of, of the relationships in your lives. So um, I was just wondering how much is their permission a part of the writing process for you? Like, do you, do you write and then show them and say, you know, <laughs> I hope you're okay with this or do they act as more of like collaborators to the work? Um, yeah. Do you, do you run much past them or is it more of, you know, your thing that you just need their stamp on before you send it out into the world? Um, yeah, that's a great question. With, with my partner, it's always been like, write something and then, and then show him and get permission. And I've been very lucky that he's always been very, um, open to, um, to me writing about our personal lives. I've yeah. thinking about this a lot lately as my kids are getting a little bit older. So mm-hmm. with this book, I've been writing about them as you know, infants and toddlers when it's less about them as, as little people and more about my relationship to them as a right. mother. But that's obviously shifting as, as they get older. And I feel like I'm still writing about them a lot, but I feel like, um, I'm, I'm moving into a time where I need to be a lot more mindful about, um, about their consent. Um, and if I'm writing something that's, that's not just about motherhood, but about them as people, um, Mm. then that's something that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need to start getting their, their permission for, for sure. I'm very aware of that, um, wanting to protect them too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And make, making sure that they're being represented in a way that's, yeah, that's true, but also true to you, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in your writing, do you feel a stronger connection, I guess, stronger to people or to place? Cause I, I just noticed both coming up so much, uh, in your writing in different instances. So I was wondering if you felt, you know, equally drawn to, uh, depictions of people versus place or, if they kind of mean the same thing to you or are influenced by each other? Um, people definitely come first. And I think where place comes in as often as like a, um, maybe a way of understanding another person. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, of the more place-based poems in this book. They're, they're really, like there's a lot of poems that are really um, connected to, to the, the place where my partner grew up, like that, that, um, country, that territory, um, the few pieces that I have about, um, my time living in Vancouver were really very much connected to, um, 
the losses that I was experiencing when I lived there. So talking about place, like place was really more of a metaphor for, for talking about myself and, and my right. experiences. Yeah. And even like going back to my, my first book, the Boson chair, that was a book about, um, about turn of the century Newfoundland. Um, but it was really about my ancestors. It was really about their stories and Newfoundland was, was the setting um and and what tied all those stories together um but it wasn't really about newfoundland so much as about um about those people and and my connection or lack of collection connection to those people um through the passage of time and and distance so it's serving as sort of a backdrop to yeah. to that narrative yeah interesting yeah. okay um, in terms of like how you piece together a collection like this, I mean, it's no, it's not chapbook in length, right? Like, how do you decide on what fits where and, and create some kind of like chronology or cohesion? Um, because it really does, there's a, there's a narrative throughout, you know, that gets developed over the course of these poems. How do you, how do you arrange it? How, like structurally, what's the process there for you? Um, it's hard. <laughs> I, I have to, I have to really give a shout out again to Jenny Edwards, my editor on this book, because she helped me with that quite a bit. Like we had a lot of conversations about moving things around to, to, to create that overarching narrative, but also like the right kind of juxtapositions along the way. Um, so a lot of stuff moved around and I think it really helps to have that second set of eyes um, who can be more objective and kind of look at the overarching um, shape of, of a book to help help guide that. Um, I found that with with lots of different projects that I, I really struggle with. Well, where does yeah. this go? Because I don't tend to write in a really chronological, linear kind of way. And so, if things, you know, one piece might might encompass like two vastly different time periods so where do you put a piece like that and and yeah yeah so um that that's something that I think I struggle with a little bit but um uh have had a lot of wonderful help with well I think yeah you wouldn't know that you struggle based on this collection at least but yeah, I always imagine gatherers as the people with the giant cork boards and every poem has its own sticky note and it's just like a mishmash of of (laughs) of stuff with no order but uh it really came together here um at what point do you feel you've arrived at an ending then for for work like this where you do have so many different pieces like you know besides just handing it over to to an editor or publisher when do you personally feel that you know you have arrived in any capacity when your publisher says you can't make any more edits <laughs> it's time for it to go to my dog <laughs> um yeah I, I i joke but that, that actually, can be your answer yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> yeah i mean again i think it, it's something that i struggle with like as i mentioned i had pieces that were published in a much earlier form that then i could i rewrote i changed so i think um like what's that I can't remember who said it originally that adage of a poem is never finished only abandoned and I think I think you can say that about a a collection as a whole too that you could continue to manipulate it and I mean maybe 
it, it's a problem when you're trying to like work toward a deadline and you know get something finished um, or you know even just work towards sending something out. But there's also something kind of cool about that um, uh, vitality of, of a book that you feel like um, it, it could keep living yeah. on and and um, and changing and. Um, I just saw um, a friend of mine uh, had a was interviewed recently, and she was talking about um, advice from Fred Waugh around exactly that. And, and Fred Waugh had had said that um, that a poem doesn't like it, it's like a lie. I, I can't remember yeah. exactly how he phrased it, but that you know it's it's not like a static thing that you have permission even after you've published it to go back and rewrite it. And and that's right. the the life of a poem. And I really like that idea. I Maybe that because guy. it gave me permission to <laughs> to do what I'd already been doing. <laughs> well you know yeah we we always need that validation. I like the word vitality for it too because you're right these yeah these can undergo so many edits and be almost unrecognizable by the end but but yeah, there's something so alive about, about poetry, even when it is, you know, bound together uh, by string and paper and everything else. Um, so just speaking to the fact that some of these poems have appeared in other literary journals in advance of deriving how is there a comparison that you can make between the feelings um, of accomplishment when you do get, you know, an individual poem published versus this collection where where everything's together in one in one space with your name on it. Um, I guess I'm kind of asking, like, is success success to you no matter the scale, um, or how do you measure success as, as a poet, um, or do you at all? Maybe you don't measure it at all, and you just write to write. It's funny because I was just having a conversation about something very similar to this with my partner, like last night, mm. um, which was kind of about the opposite that like, no matter how many successes you've had, how many publications, like there's still so often this sense of um, uh, imposter syndrome that sometimes creeps in or like, you know, you get one thing published, but then the next thing is rejected and that rejection hits so much harder than, than the acceptance does. And, you know, just kind of what we do as writers in our, in our brains. <laughs> so we're so hard on ourselves. I don't think it's just me. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think, I, I think we just, and I speaking for myself, it, it, we just have to figure out a way to really celebrate those successes, whatever they look like and focus on those and, um, and try and roll with, with the other stuff, <laughs> roll with the rejections a little bit more. Um, yeah. yeah. I love the, the, uh, there's such optimism in that answer. I love that. <laughs> Yeah. I'm trying to, to talk myself it. into that. <laughs> well, every writer has a folder chock full of rejection. So yeah, definitely. Um, one of our viewers has a question about um, uh, advice for working on a poetry collection. So specifically, how do you, and I know we kind of touched on this, but, you know, independent of your editor, how do you decide how to organize or group poems, uh, especially, yeah, into sections or to create that kind of narrative? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else what else to say because yeah, again, I, I'm not 
I don't necessarily feel like I'm, I'm great at that, or like I've really figured that out yet. Um, I think I have like literally printed all the titles of a collection and cut them up with scissors and then moved them around. Oh. Um, but actually that, that was helpful. I think um, because you can start to go small, right? You can think, okay, well, I definitely want this one to come after this one because there's, there's like some kind of thread there. Um, and I definitely want this one to come before this one because there's, there, there's a metaphor here that really builds off of something that happened over here. And so you can start to make those small choices and then gradually the bigger, bigger picture kind of takes shape. Um, so that's something that I've tried in the past, but yeah, again, I don't necessarily feel like I, ha I have the right answer to that one yet. I, I'm sure it's different for, for different writers too. Yeah, but start small. Okay. And then I guess it takes form on its own sometimes too. These are living things that we're working yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so I guess last question, uh, what is inspiring you now uh, or, or next, you know, what's to come? I know you're working on probably a few different things, but is there anything in particular that's, that's you know, making you feel that urge to sit down on Wednesdays and, and write and put your, yeah, put voice to your experiences. Um, yeah, well, I, as I mentioned, I had that project that I gave myself of, of thinking about my joyful process. And so I'm, I'm, I do have some work that's come out of that, that I'm, I, I'm going to keep on just kind of adding to and not necessarily, um, we'll just kind of see where it goes. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and I do, I have another project of poetry that, um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep it to myself for now. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's very that. thematic, um, but it's still like, it's still in the early stages. So um, that's I'm when they're hardest to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah. Okay. We'll let you keep your secret then. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for your words and, and your wisdom and for chatting with us in that beautiful reading. And it's just such a treat to hear from you and be able to host you here in this, in this way. Um, so thank you very much for that. And I'll also say thank you to Read Alberta and the University of Alberta Press for sponsoring this event. Um, next week for the series, uh, we'll be hosting Barb Howard and hearing her read from Happy Sands. And tonight we'll just say one last thank you to Jennifer um, and to everybody who tuned in on YouTube. Um, so thank you again and have a great evening, everybody. Take good care. Thank you.